This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's special archive show, Jacqueline Woodson discusses her National Book Award-nominated latest novel called Another Brooklyn. Then, PW contributing editor Sarah J. Robbins explores authors who are advocates. But first, here's a sneak peek in next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Mark, what do you have on the nonfiction side? Well, we finally got that long-awaited memoir by Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run, starred review... And this one has come out the gate with nearly 120,000 copies. Oh my. Sold the first, the first week, which we're not surprised about, but it's still great to see such a, you know, a strong showing from Bruce. And, uh, we gave this a starred review and almost every publication out there, I, I can't think of one that didn't like it, has just kind of, uh, fawned over it. And this one we say, natural storyteller Springsteen commands our attention, regaling us with his tales of growing up poor with a misanthropic father and a mother who had endless faith in people. And I mean, he tells all about his his stories with the first guitar, and his inspiration to become a musician, which was actually after seeing Elvis on the Ed Sullivan Show. So, anyway, great showing by by the boss. And at number three, we actually got a couple of cookbooks on the list. This one is um, Alton Brown, Everyday Cooking. He's a big name, does stuff on TV, and he just has lots of great, precise recipes. And this one, uh, he's like, here's the stuff that, you know, he actually cooks all the time. Here's the stuff that he cooks, depending on what food he has around. And um, this one is at number three. I mean, it's, uh, you know, pretty much, you know, right there on top of the list. Um, just at number five, we have Danielle Walker's Against All Grain Celebrations, A Year of Gluten-Free, Dairy-Free, and Paleo Recipes for Every Occasion by Danielle Walker. This is a 10-speed press book. And uh, this one, uh, we say Walker, whose need for dietary restrictions led to a personal culinary journey, refashioned celebratory dishes for 12 yearly occasions. So um, uh, we say that Walker provides a special diet index glossary of ingredients and substitutions, and you know, pretty much the paleo uh, basics, along with tidbits on storage and uses. So uh, for those who, who uh, want to do something similar, uh, which is no gluten, no dairy, and lots of meat, uh, this is, this is uh, looks like a pretty, you know, pretty go-to guide for that. Um, and then we have kind of in the health uh, section, we have the thyroid connection, why you feel tired, brain fog, and overweight, and how to get your life back by... Uh, uh, Dr. Amy Myers. She's had previous bestsellers with the uh, most popular one, the Autoimmune Solution. Uh, and this one, she's, you know, she's focusing specifically on the thyroid condition. So we got some celeb, we got some cookbooks and health books, and we also have a couple of, uh, spiritual books, uh, or books on religion. One is called the Universe Has Your Back, uh, Transform Fear to Faith by Gabrielle Bernstein. And, uh, 
we don't have a review of this, but this is in this book, she teaches readers how to transform their fear into faith in order to live a divinely guided life. And at number 12, we have Jesus Always, which is a devotional by Sarah Young. And that's pretty much our nonfiction list right there. Well, you've given me a lovely lead-in for the fiction list, um, which, by contrast, has very few new books on it this week. But number one on hardcover fiction is Woman of God by James Patterson and Maxine Pietro. And it's, it is at number one, but uncharacteristically for a Patterson title, it's only sold about 20,000 copies. Uh, and mm. that might be because it takes a, a slightly different tack from previous books. Um, it's about a doctor-turned-priest who is talked about as a possibility for the next pope and she's a woman so um wow. yeah so that's uh that's a actually kind of a big step for them um definitely some risk taking and the patterson name does sell books but uh by patterson standards as first week of 20,000 copies is low so it'll be interesting mm. to see whether uh, if they do future books in this vein whether uh the fans continue to uh snub them or uh decide that they're worth taking a chance on and then the only other book that I have in the top 20 is uh, Christmas Caramel Murder by Joanne Fluke at number 11. Uh, as you might expect, this is a cozy mystery. Um, it's the 20th in her Hannah Swenson mystery series set in Lake Eden, Minnesota. And Hannah's uh, one of those lovely cozy mystery heroines who just, you know, happens to be around when people get killed. It happens all the time, but she's definitely not at fault. It couldn't be her. She is not, as it might seem, the only thing linking all of these different crimes that have happened in 20 books so far. So uh, she just happens to be there and she investigates. And in this case, um, she discovers a woman's frozen corpse in the snow. Um, the woman is uh, known for sleeping around a bit and uh, distressingly a nearby lunch bag belongs to a nice married man and contains caramels made by his wife. So it's exactly the setup for a bit of small town anxiety over uh, who's doing what with whom under the, the cover of niceness. And uh, we say that meticulously detailed using common ingredients, the dozen recipes sprinkled throughout the text outshine the plot. But Hannah is irresistible as a cookie fresh from the oven. So uh, that's that's what we've got. That's it. Um, just those two books, and uh, you know, we'll uh, I guess we'll we'll just keep looking to the nonfiction list where all the action's happening. <laughs> it really is. Uh, I'm curious to see how Bruce Springsteen does uh, next week as well. If these uh, if the sales continue, yeah, I'm, I I'm suspect Mark they will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, an interview with Jacqueline Woodson, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Nadja Spiegelman. I'm the author of I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Jacqueline Woodson on the line. Her new book is Another Brooklyn. Jackie, I'm so glad you could join us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So give us an overview of this book, which is your first book for adults in a couple of decades. It is. Um, um, another Brooklyn is a novel. I decided I wanted to um, step away from the world of young adult and children's literature just for a minute because I'm going right back and um, do something different after writing my memoir. I wanted to go back to fiction and I wanted to revisit the place I grew up in, but through fiction. 
so this is a time and place that you were very familiar with, uh, Brooklyn in the 1970s and specifically the Bushwick area, um, which my partner always insists on calling Bushwick, like Greenwich. Um, <laughs> so if I say it that way, it's just, uh, it's an old habit. So tell us a little bit about Bushwick and especially in that era. Um, well, Bushwick was, I, I visited a little bit, well, a lot, I guess, in Brown Girl Dreaming. And it's a neighborhood, when I moved there, it was on the edge of white flight. White folks were moving out and moving to places like Long Island and upstate and Queens and um, Westchester. And black and Latino people were moving in. And um, and so the neighborhood was changing. And it was a neighborhood that was thriving. It was... um it was my home. It was exciting. It had, there was a lot of stuff going on. And I think to the outside gaze, to the people who didn't live there, it was, of course, a called a ghetto, a slum, mm-hmm. eventually the inner city. Um, but that's about how people who didn't know it saw it. And now the, na- the neighborhood has since shifted again. And um, black and Latino people have gotten pushed out or they've moved out and white folks are moving back in because now it's a hipster, cool neighborhood. So I was really interesting and kind of interested in chronicling the place as I knew it as a child and putting that on the map and in the world because I think it kind of wasn't known in a bigger world. And um and I also wanted to pay homage to it. I wanted to, I opened the book with saying, this is for Bushwick 1970 to 1990 in memory to show that it's a place that doesn't exist as it once existed, which is heartbreaking when you look back on the history of places and know that the moments um, aren't always going to be there and the places aren't always going to exist as they exist. But I didn't want it to be forgotten. I have a a very similar feeling. I also grew up in New York in the 1970s and 80s, and uh, the places where I spent time just aren't there anymore. I I could I could make a very similar dedication to the, the Far West Village. Oh know, yeah. To to before it was the meatpacking district, um, oh, and it's so different now. It's mm-hmm. so different. These places really do. They sometimes almost do feel like we made them up. It's so true. I remember in the West Village when it was all. The only thing I knew there was Cafe Florent, because mm-hmm. it was the place we went to after we left the club. <laughs> yeah. But it, and a whole lot of um, places. And Chelsea the same way. I mean, Chelsea Absolutely. was not a place that it is now. Um, and, you know, I think um, there is something to those places that is really important. Um, and that there is this way in which I feel like places can become really homogenous without a story very quickly. Yes. And uh, right now there's a lot of talk about the 25th anniversary of the Crown Heights riots, which is sort of slightly after or toward the tail end of the the time that you're writing about in another Brooklyn, but feels like it was part of the same era, these these Mm -hmm. times of changing neighborhood boundaries and clashes Mm -hmm. between groups. Uh Well, the Crown Heights riots were two groups of people who actually had been coexisting for a long time. It was the um, Orthodox Jewish people and the um, Caribbean folks, and Caribbean and African-American. And those two communities um, were very much right next to each other and intersected. I have a really wild story about that because the Orthodox Jewish community is very Orthodox, mm-hmm. right? And, um, 
And I wrote a book called If You Come Softly. And in the book, it's a retelling of Romeo and Juliet. So it's a story of an African-American boy and a white Jewish girl who is secular, but, you know, grew up on the Upper West Side, um, comes from this family that's, um, quote unquote, progressive in this way. But she finds out they have no black friends and she ends up falling in love with this black guy. So all of this stuff happens. And I was at Brooklyn Book Festival and this woman comes up to me, this young woman who was probably about 22, and and she was obviously orthodox, completely covered, and she couldn't speak, and she was holding this dog-eared copy of If You Come Softly, and she said, she could barely say it, but she said, this is my life, and then she just oh. started crying, and I signed the book for her, and she, she told me she had fallen in love with a Jamaican guy in Crown Heights, because, I mean, when you see this community, people are really basically living on top of each mm-hmm. other, the two communities. And um, her parents sent her away. Wow. And so she got sent somewhere up in the Bronx and she never saw him again, but she choked the story out and then just disappeared in the crowd. It was something I had never imagined that these two groups would intersect. And then you think, of course they would because of the young people. So it made sense that even though we tried to kind of be apart from each other, in ways, it, it's not always realistic. And um, being sent away by one's parents is sort of this overarching, always present threat uh, in another Brooklyn, particularly. There's a young woman who gets pregnant and is sent down south, and everybody, uh, you say, we, we, all, we all buttoned our blouses because everybody else fears the same fate. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that, that atmosphere about the atmosphere of being afraid of getting pregnant. <laughs> uh, being afraid of getting pregnant and also just, um, I guess, the sense of of parental discipline maintained by any means necessary. Yeah. In another Brooklyn, it was so much about the upward mo- mobility and the hope for the young girls, right? Um, and one of the biggest threats to teenage girlhood is that threat of getting pregnant and your future kind of ending or changing dramatically because now you have this choice. Do you have the baby? Do you not have the baby? Um, are you a teenage mom? Uh, like, So how limited are your choices once that happens? So especially for these four girls, that was kind of like the ultimate end of a teenage life to get pregnant. And I remember as a kid, as a young person, um, being told by my mom, you better not get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And and just kind of in the same way we talk about talking to our black sons about, you know, not running in white neighborhoods. We talk to our daughters, don't get pregnant. And, and that's not to say, of course, you can't have sex. I mean, I, that's not what I heard. But, um, but that, you know, your future is important to you and, and keep moving toward it. But in, in this society, because people are young and because teenagers or teenagers, there is that threat that sadly is too often only the girl's burden because she's the one who's carrying the baby and has to make these choices and and continue in her life. And August, uh, who's the, the main character of the book, uh, her her life, like the, the book is sort of bookended by her parents in, in a way. Um, at one end, her mother dies and the other end, her father dies. And, um, and these are such significant moments in her life. Tell us a little bit more about those relationships that she has with her parents and with the loss of them. 
so the book, what August says again and again in the book is that this is memory. So it opens from a place of her looking back and, and being aware that she is looking back. And once you get into the book and you see what she's experiencing and what she's saying, you realize that she's not quite so aware of where she is in place and time in terms of what's happening, what's happened to her mother. And so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of an elegy is kind of this child going through her own mourning as an adult. Um, and it's about those parental relationships. Her dad was their main, was her main caregiver because he brought August and her brother from Tennessee to Brooklyn and raised them and was very protective of them. Um, and did everything he could to keep them safe. So August was um, raised in this environment where someone was trying to protect her, but she wasn't always protective because of the environment she was raised in. Um, and it is about her looking back with that longing and coming to understand in the way that we do come to understand our backstories once we get to be adults and look back and say, oh, that's what was going on there. Oh, mm-hmm. I get this now. And so there is this melancholy to her um, coming to that understanding. And when I when I was first sort of getting a sense of the book, uh, the the absence of the mother, um, and later the the presence of the father's uh, new girlfriend who introduces him to a new religion, um, it it all felt like a fairy tale in a way. You know, the the absent mother, the stepmother, uh, was that a, a sort of deliberate? intention um that that parallel to fairy tales no you know i always think that we sometimes the story knows more than you do about what it's trying to say right you're writing one thing and then all these other things happen start happening and i do think that in terms of um the um the melody of the story the way the story is tell, told is the same way in which a fairy tale is told and that kind of lulling everything's going to be okay in the end everybody lives happily ever after and that comes through the repetition that comes through the way the story is written and so and of course fairy tales are one of the first ways i learned to tell stories so of course it would and um it would come out in the way i write <laughs> you know all of those ways you learn to t- to write kind of stay with you or they stay with me Tell me a little bit more about that that history with you and fairy tales. I, I fairy tales were what we were first introduced to as kids. They were what our teachers read us. They were what my mom read us, and they were the stories that people knew by heart. Um, so you you begin with that kind of story of the happily ever after, where everyone feels safe. Of course, we know that that's not what the Brothers Grimm intended with fairy tales. They were right. supposed to be lessons on. Um, and how kids can get in a lot, you know, think really bad things can happen if you don't do the right thing. But by the time they got to me, they were pretty watered down. And so for me, it was about the happily ever after and the rhythm of it and knowing that I could hear this story a hundred times and know in the end, the slipper is going to fit Cinderella or sleeping beauty is going to be woken with a kiss. And, and that's all, that's going to stay constant. And, um, so then when I moved to realistic fiction and I, I talk about the first story I read was um, 
the little match girl when there wasn't a happy ending. Mm. And I was devastated. I'm like, no, no, this is not how the story's supposed to end. <laughs> you know, in the end, she's supposed to get rich and she's supposed to have a home and she's supposed to live happily ever after. And then that doesn't happen. So you end up um, writing these stories uh, where they, maybe the happy ending is a little ambiguous, but it's but it's there. There's some some hope and some promise. Yeah, there has. I think there has to be hope somewhere in the narrative. I don't think the happiness has to come at the end, but there definitely has to be um, a place where the reader wants to keep moving forward. And really, what what I hope a good story does is changes a reader and and helps show them empathy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, they fall in love with the characters and then they want to do whatever they can to make sure those characters turn up okay. And if the characters don't turn out okay, they want to make sure whatever happened doesn't happen to someone else. So um, returning to August, she also hears a lot of these stories, which are more like the the warning kinds of stories, um, and, you know, about predatory men, about not being able to trust other girls. Uh, how does she navigate that and find that hope for herself? She finds it through her friends um, and she finds it through her own ambition. You know, her she talks about her friends that were, Basically, they just leaned into each other. And um, at one point I write that um, boys didn't understand girls alone. Um, girls together, they understood girls alone, wrapping their arms across their chest to hide themselves. And, and so with her girls, they kind of create this human shield against the world. And if this is another Brooklyn, what was the first? It depends on how you read it. Um, you know, and it could have been the Bushwick um, that the uh, guess is looking back on. It could be the place that the girls want to get out of. Um, that that place that they want to move toward. It could be um, Tennessee. It could be um, just going from childhood to young adulthood to adulthood. So, but it it really depends on the reader's interpretation. I have my ideas of what it is, but I want the reader to come to their own. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Jacqueline Woodson, author of Another Brooklyn. Um, So as we mentioned, you're best known for your books for children and your memoir, which won the National Book Award. What brought you back to writing for adults beyond, I mean, you said that you wanted to, to just take a little break and, and shift around a little bit. Um, but what led you specifically in this direction? One thing that you're able to do that I'm a, I feel more comfortable doing when I'm writing from an adult perspective is playing with time. And I feel like I always want to push the boundaries in my writing. I always want to discover something new about my work. And I do that by writing different stuff. You know, I I wrote Brown Girl and Dreaming in verse. I didn't want to write just a straight narrative memoir because I knew that's not 
how memory comes to us. It comes to us in these small moments with all of this white space around it. And I knew with another Brooklyn, I wanted to um, kind of bridge um, the world between poetry and narrative. And so, and I wanted to play with time. I wanted to have an adult perspective, which you can't have in young people's literature because young people aren't adults yet. So the person telling the story is someone young and they're not looking back from an adult perspective. So I, I really wanted to start from there. I wanted August to be grown and I wanted her to be able to look back on her life. Um, you mentioned verse. Tell us a little bit about poetry. You're the young people's poet laureate and you've said that um, one of the things you love about that is getting to pretty much define it. So, so mm-hmm. what is, what does that mean to you? It means that I can choose my platform. It means I can spend a lot of time with poetry and talking to young people about poetry. My platform is um, really trying to work with underserved kids, um, especially in rural areas where kids have never met an author, think they've never met a poet, and bring to them the accessibility of both poetry and their own ability to speak and write and read poetry. So um, this fall, I've gone to a couple of places, but this fall I'm returning to some parts of rural Mississippi and Tennessee. I'm going back down south and um, and just talking to young people about the gospel of poetry. You, accessibility and poetry aren't words that you hear together very often. Yeah, and I think that a problem. I think a lot of us growing up thinking that poetry is not for us and. And and I think that's wrong. I think that um, even me growing up, it wasn't until I came across poets like Langston Hughes and Nikki Giovanni and um, Maya Angelou and even Robert Frost that I really started understanding that poetry was a language I could speak to. But um, but until then, it was this idea that it was kind of this. I don't know if it's upper class, but it's it's, it's this way in which we were fed it that made me think, you know, I'm, I'm not the one who's going to grow up to be the poet. That's, that's for somebody else. And I'm sure you had some, some image of who the somebody else might be. Yeah, and yeah. they didn't um, look like someone you. Someone who was not a person of color, someone who was not female. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting because I don't know how these those messages got to me as a young girl in Bushwick, you know, um, because even in grade school, that's, not, you know, I'm sure the teacher wasn't putting those poems in front of us. So how 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 did that message kind of seep into our heads that poetry wasn't for us? I, I don't know, but but is it is it that um, insidious and and um, pervasive that some you know um, working class poor black kids and Latino kids in Bushwick knew that this wasn't theirs? But, so. However it happened, I am on a mission to stop it from happening. Do you find that with the kids that you work with, that you go in and they've already got this idea, poetry is not for me? No, thankfully, because of hip-hop. Uh-huh. They, you know, the fact that they recognize hip-hop as a form of poetry and spoken word as a form of poetry, um, and because some of the, and because even the po- poets who are writing their poems down more of that is getting shared in schools because of National Poetry Month and Poems in Your Pocket, all of that. And, you know, Sharon Creech's um, Love That Dog. Like, there are all these ways in which kids are suddenly realizing that now this is, this is theirs, too. 
So what do you do to work with these kids and help them uh, access their own poetic voices? We talk about things that happen in their life and everything from getting out of bed to brushing their teeth to having pizza for dinner and how those small moments matter because they're part of a greater um, moment and a bigger life. And, and, and I get them to write down what matters to them and who they love and what they see and what they think about. And, and they start realizing, wait, this is my voice. Like these things that are happening to me are informing my voice in the world. And, and they get really excited. I mean, kids love telling stories. They love, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily writing things down because they're all always a whole bunch of reluctant writers. And, and it's not that they're reluctant to tell the story. They just don't want to write. The physical act of writing is not exciting to them. Whereas me as a kid, I love the physical act of writing. I love making letters and words and sentences. So um, I think that's where it gets to be the hardest is helping them love the physical act of writing and showing them how magic it could be to put three words on a line and have 10 people interpret those three words differently. And, you know, to have a whole discussion come out of a a haiku or have a whole discussion come out of two rhyming lines or or a piece of spoken word that they've stood up in front of the class and said. When you talk about the physical act of writing, um, that can mean so many things. It can mean holding a pen. It can mean typing. It can mean spray painting graffiti. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you find that different media kind of help them to to access that physicality of writing? You know, it's hard because a lot of the kids I'm speaking to, they only have access to one form, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have computers. They don't have iPads. They don't have phones. They um, they have pen and paper. Sometimes they have chalk and we go outside and write stuff on the sidewalk. But um, um, so they do have that. They do have pen and paper or pencil and paper. And um, and I do allow them sometimes to talk to them about drawing their stories because I know we're not all going to be writers. And then um, shaping poems from the illustrations. But yeah, we have we have to. I, I tend to make no assumptions when I walk into a room. I always talk about how you don't even assume. You you know you can't say what did you have for breakfast this morning because you can't even assume some of these kids have eaten. Uh, you know, or right. or you know what do you have on the wall in your bedroom? It's like what if their bedroom is um, a couch in a living room mm-hmm. or a mat in a in a foster home or a shelter like. So I, I always start from very, very basic places, and I always make sure that pencil and paper has been supplied because I don't even want to assume kids have that. Right. And uh, thinking about illustrations, I've seen some poetic graphic novels coming coming down the pike recently, and uh, it fascinates me, the idea of the interplay of um, the the comic form or the graphic novel form where, where each picture is its own sort of miniature poem and they're all pulled together um, to form a narrative uh, and then layering textual poetry on that or, or connecting the two. Is that, is that something that you've worked with or that these kids have come up with on their own? 
Um, kids definitely come up with it. I'll put two kids together and have them work together, and they'll come up with it. And also because you think um, they're living in an age with not a whole lot of words on the page. Um, so they are thinking in, in short spurts. Um, and, and it does make total sense that that's what it would begin to look like. So, yeah, I have seen that. It sounds like so much fun and so um personally inspiring not in that um not in that trite way <laughs> you know but um not in that oh you know these poor children their stories of poverty are so inspiring but in the in the sense of of watching them light up watching them make these connections in their in their heads um and and start to put words onto paper and the fact is you know that I think for me it's so exciting I just had I used to teach at a, um, a writing camp that the National Book Foundation did for underserved kids. And um, one of my students just published a book. And, you know, and, and I'm like, it's so easy to look at young people and see their invisibility, right? <laughs> and to mm-hmm. just see them as these young people in this one moment of time. But when I walk into a, a room with young people, I'm like, they can be anybody, you know, what is what is this gonna look like fifteen, twenty years from now? You know, even the gruffest, little ashiest, you know, <laughs> a, most neglected looking kid can grow up to be anybody. I mean, so many of these jobs have not even been invented yet and maybe they'll invent them. So so I definitely come at them from this place of I love that. I mean, I just think you guys are our future. You are the ones who are going to go out there and change the world. So like let me, ha- you know, here are some shoulders, stand on them. Let me give you everything I have because because you're going to take it and run. And also coming at it from that place of me having grown up, never having met a writer. And until I was in 11th grade and I met Betty Thomas and how I remember my high school had this picture and all you see, you see him um, autographing all these books and you just see my brown hand on his shoulder. And I so remember being like, I'm touching a writer. I'm touching a writer. Wow. You know, because I wanted it so much. And I just think that these young people, it's the same thing. You know, they're hungry and they're hungry to be seen and they're hungry to be heard and they're hungry to put their stories in the world. And, and I'm I'm lucky enough to be able to be a part of that. So obviously working with kids is incredibly important to you. Is it, um, as you're, as you're touring and so forth to support this book for adults, does it feel like a break or are you just really impatient to get back to the kids? Oh, you know, the kids show up. It's so funny because <laughs> I haven't been on this tour. I haven't been a single place where some of my fans haven't shown up. And it's funny because I, I keep, uh, I just met this kid, Isaac, who's this, um, you know, he's this little redhead boy with glasses and um and he was so sweet he, he you know with that kind of eternal blush of the really pale kid mm-hmm. <laughs> and he had his copy of brown girl dreaming and he had um he, he you know he was sitting in the front row everyone was there so many people were there to hear another brooklyn but there were also a lot of librarians and teachers there and he came up afterwards and he had read it for his, um, it had been his summer reading, but he said afterwards he didn't want to read anything else because he loved it so much. And it was just so great. And then I was in DC. No, I was in Boston and this kid had made his dad drive him an hour and 40 minutes from, um, from Maine to hear me read. And he was another, 
I think he was a nine-year-old boy. And I was just like, wow. I'm, I'm, so even as I'm touring for another Brooklyn, the minute I see young people in the audience, it changes what parts of the book I'll read sure. and how I'm going to talk about stuff. But I'm just as happy to have them in the room as I am to have the adults. So how have the first couple of weeks of publication been for you? How's, how's the launch gone? You know, it's a bestseller, which is surprising. It was a number one indie pick, which was surprising. I'm always so surprised when people love it. I mean, I know I love it because I've poured my soul into it, but I'm I'm always excited when other people get it too and and um and understand what I'm trying to say. So it's it's I'm I'm grateful. It's going really well. So uh, you said you're going back to the South uh, to do more poetry, education for kids. What else is on your agenda as the touring kind of winds down? The touring hasn't started yet. Uh huh. Isn't that so scary? It doesn't really start in full till um, the beginning of September. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, uh, I don't know. I, I hope to go back to writing. I mean, I haven't completely stopped, but I definitely feel distracted. So I, I'm um, hoping to get back and start writing for young people again. Well, I'm sure that something you see or hear will spark a story. It sounds like that that always comes along sooner or later. Oh, definitely. I've been talking with Jacqueline Woodson. You can find her book, Another Brooklyn, in stores right now. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time. Oh, thanks for your great questions and for having me. Next up, PW contributing editor Sarah J. Robbins previews our young adult feature. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs, and here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW contributing editor Sarah J. Robbins is here to tell us all about authors who have become advocates for their readers. Sarah, thank you so much for talking with us. Mark, thank you, Rose. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit. This is going to be a feature in our upcoming issue, our YA uh, feature. Um, tell us a little bit about this. I, I, I see you're tackling some some difficult subjects here. Yeah, thank you. So we've decided to take a look at, you know, sort of what's behind the scenes of some recent popular YA books that have tackled some particularly tough subjects uh, and find out both what is involved with writing about some of these issues, things like suicide and bullying, um, and then also sort of what the result is once the book is published, sort of how readers are reacting to these books, how they're communicating with the authors, and then in turn kind of what the authors are doing with some of this feedback, you know, how, how they're responding to it. So we're talking about authors who are writing about and, and understanding their their readers may be experiencing a death in the family or we're talking about crime or substance abuse or, or even bullying. Um, t- tell us how, how, the, how exactly they're doing it. So it depends. You know, there are some, some of the writers that I talked with, um, you know, folks like Jay Asher, who wrote the book uh, 13 Reasons Why that was very popular a few years ago, um, and and some others as well have some some kind of personal experience with the subject. And in in uh, Jay Asher's case, he had a relative who, when she was in high school, attempted suicide. Uh, and the main character in Thirteen Reasons Why uh, also um, 
you know, committed suicide actually during, during her junior year in high school. So, um, you know, Jay talked a little bit about sort of dealing with this topic, um, and, and, you know, how it need, how he needed some time to, to really think about how to, how to do so honestly. Uh, and then, you know, kind of going ahead and, and certainly fictionalizing the experience. Um, and then he talked a lot about kind of the outpouring of, um, response to it, you know, which was much, much bigger than he had ever expected and sort of led him down the line to, uh, go on this really incredible tour called, uh, 50 States Against Bullying. Um, you know, in the, in the case of the main character in the book, um, she was re- reacting to the suicide was in part caused by, um, you know, bullying. So mm. he then traveled with the book as really a teaching tool, visiting schools across the country and talking about, you know, just about, about the book, hearing from students, um, and really turning it into, in some ways, an advocacy and awareness tool. Oh, wonderful. So these authors really didn't expect when they started out that they were going to end up, uh, being a focal point for kids who are in trouble? I think very few of them did. You know, I think that the idea is, you know, as, as, as most writers are thinking about, you know, creating a narrative, they, you know, want something that is, you know, sort of emotionally resonant. And I think especially, you know, more and more lately, uh, writers of YA, you know, books are, know that, you know, teens are, are dealing with some really, really tough, issues, you know, they're, they're either living them or know someone who is, or, you know, because of social media and just sort of the the way that information flows, there's so much more awareness around issues like bullying, substance abuse, um, and others. So I think that what happened was a lot of them put themselves out there, you know, and again, some had personal experience, um, some, you know, very, very, very deep personal experience. You know, we talked with, um, Sungju Lee, who has a memoir that's out, uh, actually came out last month called Every Falling Star. Um, he is originally from North Korea, so writes about his experience growing up there and then eventually escaping it. Uh, so he obviously, you know, had much, much more of a sense of, um, potentially how people would react to to dealing with such a tough subject and knowing that he, I mean, that's sort of an extreme example that he is such a, a spokesperson um, for something that really very few people know very much about. Um, but in other cases, you know, there, there are writers like Lee Bardugo, who is a fantasy writer who wrote, um, you know, has, has written the book Six of Crows and now Crooked Kingdom. Um, they're sort of a paired set fantasy novels and there's a there's a character in there who was kidnapped and forced into prostitution um which is not something that she had any direct experience with um herself but sort of decided that that issue was emblematic of something that she wanted to um illustrate about the society she was writing about and so she ended up doing a lot of research and getting in touch with survivors um you know to sort of hear personal accounts and make sure that what she was writing about seemed really realistic. And in Lee's case, you know, this experience and sort of the reaction from readers has really turned her into um, an advocate. You know, she is now, um, you know, as, as part of her tours, is raising some money for an organization called mm. Girls Education and Mentoring Services, uh, which 
really tries to support survivors of uh, sex trafficking and uh, commercial sexual exploitation. So, you know, as she's going around talking about this character, talking about her story, there's also an element of, um, you know, awareness raising and, and saying, you know, this happens in real life and this is something that we can all do something about. And I see we also have a, a conversation with Ellen Hopkins, who's the author of Crank, which is, uh, and she, she herself goes on, uh, uh, tours or at least gives talks about her older daughter's struggle with, uh, crystal meth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Ellen is, um, you know, sort of a, um, she's become sort of very established, you know, is as far as this, genre goes. And she's written several books that have really handled some tough, tough um, subjects in some very creative um, and engaging ways. Uh, and and she had a lot to say about the experience and sort of the evolution of this sort of sub subcategory, if you will, sort of how um, everyone from publishers to editors to readers have reacted to these types of topics over the years. And, you know, really about how Writing her first YA book, uh, Crank, really freed her up. You know, sort of the response to it in the editing process. Um, you know, I guess there was an openness around her, her tackling this subject of, you know, meth addiction so frankly and so openly. And then the outpouring of uh, response to the book, which is still sort of a very popular book. Um, you know, really showed her that it's important to talk about some of these issues, especially some that people aren't talking about and aren't talking with kids about. And I think what's happened is kids have come to that book, experienced it, and then some who don't feel like they have trusted adults in their lives have, you know, have reached out to to Ellen, you know, and that's sort of to let her know, you know, not just, you know, as maybe is more traditional with an author, you know, not just you know, this book meant a lot to me. Thank you. But this is what I'm going through right now. You know, in some cases, this is what I'm going through today. And in some cases, you know, this is, this is what I need. Um, so she's needed to learn how to, you know, like many of the authors we talked with, um, sort of the appropriate way to respond to such a thing. It sounds like you've done quite a bit of research on this. Um, uh, and w- was everyone really willing to, to, to speak about this? I mean, you've got you know a, a nice selection of, of authors and profiles. Thank you. Yeah. No. It. You know what I found was there. This is sort of an interesting um, angle on on what they do, and it's it's something you know a lot of these folks are accidental advocates. You know, they didn't kind of go into this in order to raise awareness per se, but just to write a really compelling story. And and what they found is that it's, um, you know, in most cases, you know, the, the writers have really kind of welcomed this role as well and have been, have learned a lot about, about living as both a, a writer and, you know, and someone who is, um, you know, providing their readers with, with insight in some cases support, you know, and in some cases very essential, even arguably life-saving support. Um, so the stories were wonderful that they told, you know, it's, and just the learnings around, um, you know, sort of reaching 
an audience in a very different, very personal way. And I think the internet is, you know, social media and, and email, you know, you're able to sort of connect with a reader in a way that, um, you know, is, is very immediate and in some cases incredibly, incredibly useful. So it, I learned a lot, certainly, by writing it. I was going to ask, um, what really surprised you that you learned while you were doing this? Um, did, did anything come up that you just really weren't expecting? Um, that's a good, that's a good question. I guess, you know, the, in some cases, you know, there were writers that in some cases sort of had some experience with some of the issues they were writing about, but didn't really want to, some were sort of very confessional. I mean, we had some memoirists in here. Others um, sort of loosely based their books on, on, you know, experiences that they themselves had gone through. And there was a really wide range of um, interest in telling one's own story, you know, interest in making the author's story a part of the story of the book um, and the publication of the book, especially with some of the novels. So, you know, different writers had different feelings about sharing information about their own personal lives, um, which makes a lot of sense. You know, in some cases they really wanted, you know, they would sort of mention that they had had some, some experience with a given issue, but not wanting to kind of have anything distract from the plot of the, of the novel. Um, so kind of keeping that part of themselves back, but then being willing to hear from readers and really kind of connect with them personally. I guess the other thing that surprised me is some of these really pretty well-known authors, um, you know, sort of the, the pains that they take to make sure that the readers that are reaching out to them feel heard, you know, whether that's through kind of specifically designed social media campaigns or through sort of direct messages, whether they're on Twitter or through email, things like that. Just knowing that, you know, I guess putting some of these issues out there into the universe, hearing back from, from readers that really are looking for some kind of response, sort of knowing the value of that and trying in whatever way is possible to kind of establish that connection and let them know that they're being seen and heard, you know, which in a lot of cases is, you know, some of the, that's that's some of the issues that are coming up in the book, you know, some of the issues that are, are true for teens, you know, kind of needing to find their voice, needing to be supported. So when it comes back around, um, you know, I think that it's it was surprising and heartening to me to hear how invested these authors were in, in kind of making sure that, that their readers felt supported. Well, that's amazing. Sarah, thank you so much for telling us about all of this. And I think our readers, our listeners are really going to look forward to seeing the feature in Monday's issue. Great. Thank you so much again for having me. Always great to have you on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Belle Boggs, the author of The Art of Waiting, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. 
Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 